Hello, everybody, and welcome to Unaired, the show where we take TV shows canceled with episodes left unaired, review them, and then pitch our ideas for how we think they could have continued. I'm Ed, and with me today, very special guest from the Maximum Fun Network, uh, from Bullseye, uh, from Jordan Jesse Go, one of my favorite shows. Uh, it's America's Radio Sweetheart, Jesse Thorne. Hi, how are you? Good. How are you, Jesse? I'm doing okay. Enjoying a beautiful day here in the city of Los Angeles. Well, that's good. Um, it is a barren, cold hellscape in Massachusetts. Um, <laughs> so, I actually i i am I, I am currently somewhat distressed. Speaking of Los Angeles and Massachusetts, because California's two senators, uh, Kamala Harris and Dianne Feinstein are both from San Francisco. They're both former local San Francisco politicians. And they just entered into one of those bets where you bet local foods against other politicians over the World Series. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, as a San Franciscan, as a former San Franciscan myself, or a native San Franciscan myself, I cannot imagine feeling more betrayed than I am at them having at two San Francisco politicians having tweeted hashtag go Dodgers. Sickening. (laughs) I will be rooting for the Red Sox in the World Series. That is the right way to go. (laughs) And I I am basically just saying that because I'm from Massachusetts and I will uh, I will be taxed if I don't. Yeah, that's fine. That's good enough. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm not a Red Sox fan or anything. I'm just saying it because I hate the Dodgers. So we're both kind of one foot in, one foot out on this thing, but at least we're on the same team. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so um, usually for the show, I send a, I've curated a list of TV shows. And I also say like, hey, if there's a show that the guests would like to choose, they, they're more than welcome to. And you chose a amazing show, Police Squad. So what was your uh, kind of uh, reasoning with Police Squad? Like, what was your background with it? Well, I, (laughs) so a DVD of Police Squad came out maybe 10 years ago. And I got sent a promotional copy in the mail. And I had not really heard of it. I was vaguely aware that the Naked Gun movies had come from a television program. And I watched a couple and thought, oh my God, this show is amazing. This might even be better than the Naked Gun movies. And uh, then um, I, I, have a, I have a cabin in the woods here in California. And in my cabin, I have a TV VCR and I found a set of Police Squad on VHS. And so <laughs> it's it, it, until I recently found a complete set of All, All Creatures Great and Small, uh, I didn't have any other TV shows on VHS, so if my kids went to bed and there was not time to uh, watch a movie, the only option was Police Squad, and uh, that had worked out. That has worked out great for me <laughs> because Police Squad is <laughs> hilarious. It's I will I will I, I is the rare thing that I'm glad to watch more than once. Yeah, I was surprised because I I also um this is the first time for this show I've actually gotten the physical media. Because I love the Naked Gun movies, so I'm like, oh, you know what? Might as well. It's in a, it's in a bundle with the three Naked Gun movies. And the se- the second I finished watching the first episode, I'm like, holy shit! I need to finish this whole series. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's not a not the hugest time investment. It's like two and a half hours of television or whatever. But uh, yeah, it is it is great, and it was also the only show I could think of that had unaired episodes, although those unaired episodes later aired. Uh, But it was canceled before its initial run of six episodes had completed. Right. It was canceled after, I believe, episode four. Exactly. And I think they burned off the last two in the summer uh, later that year or something like that. But uh, And I also think that they re-ran them on CBS when The Naked Gun came out 10 years later. Uh, but, uh, yeah, there was, there were, I, I rewatched the last two, the ones that didn't make it in the, in the first round of, uh, airings on CBS in the early eighties. So this show, uh, like you mentioned, ended in the summer, they burned off the episodes. Um, it aired originally March 4th to July 8th, 1982, and it was created by, uh, David and Jerry Zucker and Jim Abrahams, uh, if those names sound familiar, it's because they are behind a lot of uh, spoof movies. They did 
the Naked Gun films. They did Airplane. They did uh, individually. They all did separate things. Some of them did Basketball. Some did Scary Movie 3 and 4. But these are, aside from Mel Brooks, the few people that can actually do parody. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I think that anybody who works in the comedy industry would tell you that parody is the lowest form of comedy. Uh, but, you know, really what what Zucker Abrams Zucker do, I mean, I haven't seen their scary movie uh, 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 episodes. What do you call them? I haven't seen the, the scary movie films that they directed, so I can't speak to those. Um, but what they essentially do is rather than, you know, in contrast to the Scary Movie series, for example, which is a true parody in that what is funny about the movie Scary Movie is that they are showing you things you recognize from that genre. Uh, I think that Zucker, Abram Zucker in Airplane, in the, in their great films, Airplane and, and the Naked Gun movies and Top Secret and so on and so forth, they're basically just taking the form and uh, of, in this case, a proce- police procedural and hanging a million jokes on it. Um, and the police procedural form is so durable. Uh, like it's so, the beats are so familiar and the narrative is so satisfying, even when it is completely absurd and silly, uh, that it's it's basically the perfect vehicle for that kind of nonsense i mean like i have you ever seen airport airport 76 or whatever it is the movie that airplane is a parody of i haven't no and i don't know anybody that has yeah but like airplane is like the funniest thing ever like i could i could sit down and watch airplane right now and uh it came out when i was you know negative six years old or whatever um and because you know, it ta- it borrows the form of this airplane disaster movie, uh, but really just borrows the form as an excuse to have 10 trillion jokes. I, I would say, like, honestly, like, I would say that um, the movies that the Lonely Island guys have made, they've made two super funny movies, MacGruber and uh, Popstar. And both of those are, are, are probably much more similar to those Zucker Abrams Zucker things than like scary movie is or whatever um because they are basically taking a taking a form taking a structure that already exists and then saying well what if we added seventy five thousand jokes to that right and you get that like from the get-go on this show because right in the opening credits there's already a ton of jokes (laughs) yeah totally so so the opening credits uh start off introducing leslie nielsen and he gets out of his car. There's a shootout. Then Alan North, who's the uh, captain, he's in the office. Then there's a shootout. <laughs> and then Rex Hamilton as Abraham Lincoln. There's a shootout. <laughs> yeah, I really, I really like. There's, there's a lot of running jokes on this show for a show that only lasted six episodes. And one of the best is that every episode they introduce a guest star, and the guest star, who are legitimately famous people, like people that I have heard of despite be having been you know one or two years old when the show aired on tv um uh, every guest star gets killed in the opening credit montage it was so funny because when i first watched this i'm like oh shit i didn't know lauren green was in this and literally within the first two seconds he's stabbed and thrown from a car (laughs) yeah absolutely but there's i mean like there is no moment in the show that does not have a wonderful joke going on somewhere like i I was watching uh i was watching one joke in the foreground of a scene in the police station and i noticed i mean i i guess i've probably seen them all a couple times now and i had never noticed that outside the window of the police station they have matted in uh the eiffel tower (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I didn't even know yeah. that. <laughs> it's like there's just there's just 10 trillion billion jokes. And you wonder, like, when you're watching it, on the one hand, these are the guys that made Airplane the greatest thing of this type ever. On the other hand, you're like, how could they possibly have kept this up? I mean, I guess The Simpsons kept it up. But, like, it's 
the density, the number of gags that they have to come up with to make this work is unfathomable. Right. It's ins- it's insanity to me how many gags they fit into 23, 24 minutes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's some real good ones. Man, I was just Oh yeah. I was just thinking about I think this is a runner. I think they do this a few times where uh where Leslie Nielsen is interviewing someone in the police station and he goes, uh, cigarette? And then they go, Yes, it is. <laughs> yep. <laughs> that's actually uh one of the uh when you pop the DVD in, that's one of the clips that it shows while it's waiting for you to choose an episode. <laughs> And that was like the first introduction to the show for me was that clip. And I was like, oh, I'm in for a fun ride. <laughs> I mean, the the reality is like, you know, like so many of these jokes are like the most basic joke form in the world. Like that, like literalism, like someone taking something figurative as literal is a joke that like seven-year-olds figure out, you know, like that's what is funny to a seven-year-old. Um, you know, it's like immediately after two words that sound similar. Um, but I don't, I mean, it's, you know why it works? Cause it works, <laughs> you know, it's funny. And I think a big part of that too is Leslie Nielsen because he, he can sell it nonstop. Yeah. I mean, every single actor in the show, I think that like there, I, I think that it is overstated how, it's overstated that that because Leslie Nielsen had a career as a um, serious actor or a semi-serious, kind of B-level serious actor before he started doing these comedies, it, it's overstated that the extent to which any serious, weighty person could do his part. I mean, I, I it makes me think of like, you know, I'm sure that was the thinking behind, for example, casting Andre Brower in Brooklyn Nine-Nine. And I love Brooklyn Nine-Nine and I love Andre Brower in it uh, because he's a like a legitimately brilliant actor. Um, and he does bring a lot of, you know, the fact that he has so much weight uh, brings a lot to the lightness around him. When they have Andre Brower do something funny uh he is uh, he's not bad at it but he's not as good at it as the you know lifelong comedy people who surround him and i think there some people have the idea that like all you have to do is write something funny for a person who has a lot of gravitas to say and that kind of is true like it's not not true but Every single one of the actors who are playing a type in this show also nail every single joke perfectly. Like, every single one of them is brilliantly funny just because they are being deadpan and many of them had previous careers as relatively serious actors. They're not... They're doing it on purpose. Like, they, it's it's not just that they are like vessels for parody because they are exactly like the thing that's being parodied. They are good at it. Right. So the episode, the uh, plot of it is a woman, Sally works at the Acme credit union and she needs money for her orthodontist, which they play out very funny because they make it seem like it's a drug habit in the beginning rather than just orthodontistry because she's going to her boss saying, Jim, I need help. And he says, Oh, yeah, this week it's your rubber bands. Next week it's braces. Like, it'll never end, Sally. <laughs> and <laughs> so she decides, all right, you know what? I'm just going to kill my boss and blame it on this guy that's setting up an account here and just steal the money. So <laughs> one of the bits while uh, this guy is setting up his account is it gets very invasive. Uh, it starts off, okay, I need two forms of ID. and you just stand there. Now I need you to turn your head and cough. All right, spread your toes. Other side. And while uh, this is all happening, Sally pulls out a gun from her desk, then pulls out a gun from her purse, loads it, and shoots the man. <laughs> yeah, there there are a lot of jo- there are a lot of jokes on the show that 
call out the absurdity of the procedurality of these shows. Like, I guess this is like a parody of 60s and 70s cop procedurals. And there are a lot of jokes where, you know, in a, I once saw a, my, my friend uh, Brandon Bird is a painter who does a lot of work about popular culture. And when we were in college, he did this art show about Law & Order, which is like his favorite thing in the world. He loves Law & Order so much. And one of the pieces that I think about a lot was this video piece that was made by this, I don't know, it's European video art collective of some kind. And it was every moment, it was a montage on Law & Order uh, of Law & Order moments where characters take off and put on their glasses. <laughs> and this was like before, this was before the idea of the, you know, quote unquote, supercut or whatever. And actually, I think had a very different purpose than the supercut. But like the idea of it, it essentially was that like in this hyper compressed narrative form, they're constantly making choices that we maybe don't even notice anymore because we're so used to the form about what to show and what not to show. And so realistically, when you're watching Law & Order, the moment where a character takes on or puts off their glasses may be the only air in the entire narrative. I mean, it's like why people talk about how how they're always stocking shelves or whatever. Right. And one of the things that this show, that Police Squad does really great, is it is it will, like, it, it sort of breaks down and calls attention to those those sort of process parts of a procedural like things like there's always great jokes when leslie nielsen has to drive from somewhere to somewhere else i i was watching one where he said he said i had to drive back i had to drive back to hq or something and it's just it's a you know green screen car driving shot but he's driving backwards (laughs) (laughs) just for no reason just other than that he was driving back um and so all those, all these like moments of and time things, I, I love. Also, the, the, another kind of joke that they'll do a lot that's really great is like carrying a scene one beat past where it would stop on a procedural show. They'll just show that next moment that is implied, but they'll show the craziest version of it. Or they show, and and like they do this in every every part of the production. They show the thing that is implied, or they they call attention to the limitations. I mean, like the visual gags. Like there's a there's a character who's uh, works in the police station who is always getting called over, who is uh, like seven and a half feet tall, and so he's like his head is out of frame in all the shots. Like they call him over and he comes in. And it's just the the camera only comes up to his neck, <laughs> and then he leaves. <laughs> or the end end credit montages that they do in every show where they freeze, but there's like they'll be like pouring they'll they'll do that kind of credit freeze, but they'll be they'll have like a coffee pot pouring coffee, and it's like the coffee cup is overflowing because <laughs> they're all just holding a position instead of having stopped the film. Right, and all these things are like. All these things are particularly funny because I think police procedurals are so mechanical and so much about form. Like they're so driven by this has to happen, then this has to happen, then this has to happen. We show it in this way, this way, and this way. Like it's like, it's almost mechanistic. And so they do all these jokes that explode or point at those conventions. Right. Uh, one of the when you were mentioning earlier the uh the whole background thing how when he's driving there's always a funny background that's that starts right in the first episode uh there's a part where he goes oh we have to drive over to little italy in the background you see a roman coliseum (laughs) so stupid and then when they get to the widow's house in the background you see the leaning tower of pisa out the window (laughs) it's like who even that's barely even a joke right (laughs) But it's so stupid that, like, you see it and you go, oh, God, and you can't help but laugh. Yeah, I mean, like, I'm a real joke snob. Like, I can't even begin to tell you what a joke snob I am. Like, 
basically, if I watch a network television sitcom, even a perfectly good one, I just sit there resenting the whole time that the jokes aren't as good as the jokes from 30 Rock or The Simpsons, <laughs> like the greatest jokes of all time. Uh, and I have no... I have no joke snobbiness defenses against this. Like every one of these things, every one of these jokes just works so great. And I also don't think that that's like, like that's about the skill of the people making it because there have been plenty of spoofs that aren't particularly funny. I mean, I think there was an attempt to make essentially a remake of this show in Angie, Angie Tribeca. I don't know if you've seen that show. I know of it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that show is not bad. Uh, it's totally not bad, but it's not as good as this show. And you're like, oh, because these people are the greatest ever at doing this particular thing. I mean, honestly, like, I think these are better than e even the Mel Brooks spoofs. I, I can't believe I said that out loud. <laughs> um, you know, like, I, I think, especially the lesser ones, but... Um, uh, like I think they're they're a, a lot funnier than um, uh, Spaceballs. Not that Spaceballs is bad. Uh, sorry, people who love Spaceballs, <laughs> but uh, Spaceballs is only okay as far as I'm concerned. And like uh, Airplane is perfect. Like Airplane is amazing. Even Top Secret, which is very odd and is a parody of a thing Elvis movies that I know nothing about, <laughs> um, uh, is still pretty great like there's some pretty hilarious stuff in in top secret yeah even like like you mentioned it it, it it's more joke dense than space balls so i feel like it feels more you're getting more bang for your buck in 20 something minutes over versus over an hour and a half and i think another thing is that um i mean i i I feel terrible for having backed into any opposition to Mel Brooks, who's like one of my favorites ever of all time. Uh, and I want to make that clear. In fact, he's more of a favorite of mine than is, than are the, uh, than Zucker, Abrams, Abram Zucker. But uh, one thing that makes these movies great is that because they because the tone is always deadpan, um, the lesser jokes are much more tolerable. So if you're annoyed by it, it's very unlikely you will be annoyed by a joke, even if it just passes by without making you laugh. Whereas I think that in the Mel Brooks movies, every joke gets sold hard. And in the ones where the jokes are great, you know, Young Frankenstein, or I mean, I don't know. I, I love History of the World Part One, which is some people are not that into. Um, like in, in those, when, when the jokes are great, when they're selling them that hard, it's, it's fun because uh, they work. But when the jokes don't support the salesmanship, um, it's kind of a different matter, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, so I'm just going to go through a quick rundown of the plot because there are so many things that happen in this episode, just joke wise. And I just want to highlight a few of them that are amazing. Uh, so basically the plot is this woman kills her boss, steals money, blames it on another guy. They, uh, do some bullet analysis, find out that she had to have shot him and turns out that she is not who she says she is. There's a shootout and she gets arrested. That's like the basic plot. Um, some of my favorite moments in this are when Frank first arrives at the crime scene. It's like a completely empty street save for a trash can. And he makes a point to crash into the trash can. <laughs> yeah, that's another great runner on the show. He never parks his car without crashing it. <laughs> like He crashes his car every time he pulls into anything. It's never commented upon or followed up on. <laughs> he just is incapable of driving without crashing. Right. And um, with the uh, dead bodies, we get two ga uh, two gags. The coroners are bringing the body out as the captain is explaining the whole situation to Frank. And it's just an extremely long uh, body. And he, <laughs> it gets to the point where they go inside and you still get the coroner walking out. <laughs> <laughs> that really is like a classic 
I was watching one, a different episode last night where um, they take, they go to the, they go to the morgue and they pull out the body that they're looking at. And while they're looking at this body, they, there's a couple of morgue guys uh, pull out another drawer behind them but it won't go all the way out and the body's kind of big. So they're trying to stuff it into the drawer <laughs> head first <laughs> while the scene is playing out in front of them, <laughs> like just banging it over and over and like trying to fold it up. And, oh, God, it's hilarious. Uh, and then we get a um, a uh, sort of who's on first type bit, which could have failed extremely hardly, but it works so well. Uh, we get, he's a... Uh, the uh, gunman's name is, I believe, Jim Twice, and uh, her boss's name is Jim Fell, and he he interviews her about the whole thing, saying, so what happened? Oh, well, I shot uh, the gunman once, and then Jim Fell. Who's Jim Fell? Oh, well, he's the auditor. He had the flu, so uh, Jim filled in. Well, who's filled in? And it just goes on for about two and a half, three minutes to the point where it stops being funny for a brief period of time and then it comes right back. <laughs> I mean, that kind of thing is like, it's so rare to see someone put that much work and skill into something that corny. Right. In contemporary comedy. Um, because everything, everything has to feel new. And I don't think the Zuckers ever even began to feel like anything they did had to feel new so they just they are what happens if comedy geniuses work on hoary forms h-o-a-r-y um and it's oh it's just the best like it 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 makes you realize that that stuff is it just takes incredible craft like absolutely astonishing craft and the way that it, the how perfectly they do it and they do it you know once a show there's like a big complicated thing like that you know not a throwaway gag but like a a series of interlocking gags um that you're just like man like i wish i guess if everybody tried to do it most of them would suck and it would be the worst because I can't imagine anything worse than watching, you know, uh, a bad version of cliched comedy forms. But like watching somebody who's brilliant at it, you're like, oh, I know why people in the 20s like this as well. Right. Uh, because it was great then and it's great now. That's part of why this holds up so well, I think. Absolutely. I mean, one of the things that's amazing about this show, M Matt Groening has talked a lot about how this show was in some ways an inspiration for the Simpsons, which you wouldn't expect because they're, you know, the Simpsons is a family sitcom in that has some very traditional things about it. I mean, like Jim Brooks involvement in the Simpsons was to say, look, no matter what happens, no matter how crazy and plastic this world is, uh, there has to be a sincere family sitcom in it. Um, but the thing that, the thing that this show shares with the Simpsons is like, I mean, there's, there's shows, there's, there's TV comedies that are this old that I would still watch and enjoy. I mean, I think, uh, this, this aired in what, 82 or 84 or something like that. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I guess I, I would probably, I would probably enjoy watching taxi. I've definitely enjoyed watching cheers, which went on TV around then. Mm -hmm. Um, the Dick Van Dyke show is pretty good. I mean, it's epically great in context, but uh, without adjusting for time having passed, it's the fact that it remains pretty good is an incredible achievement. Um, like there are shows that hold up pretty well, especially if you're willing to forgive them the creakiness of this, of the audience sitcom form. But like Police Squad is as intense and funny as anything that's as intense funny and intensely funny as anything that's on television now and this is a show that was on television 35 years ago um and that revolution was a revolution that was led by the simpsons like one of the 
amazing things about The Simpsons is there's always a great joke happening because whatever they're not waiting for they're not holding for applause they don't you know they don't have to they, their universe is very plastic because it's animated like they can change things and stretch things and whatever um but police squad is you know that's 8 years before 7 or 8 years before the simpsons um and it has that same incredible density of jokes I mean, like if I like, I really love Cheers. I've watched almost every Cheers, um, and it's like one of my favorite television comfort foods. Uh, but you know, that was a really sophisticated show on TV at the time, and it does not play as a sophisticated show in 2018. It plays as a good show, <laughs> you know, right. but it's just pretty regular. Like the jokes aren't; they occasionally mention a fancy thing but only rarely <laughs> you know and it's not like the jokes are like really they're just regular sitcom jokes they're just really good ones um and yeah like police squad has a kind of fine fineness and sharpness that it's hard to find anywhere else at this time yeah and i, I believe matt graney actually like because like you said he has talked about this a lot uh, I was reading on um, the Wikipedia page that uh, there's a quote about him saying, if this show had been made 10, 15 years later, it would have been insanely huge. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to know. It's it's like, it's hard for us in 2018. I mean, even as somebody, I'm 37. So I grew up, and, and I grew up with mostly without cable. Um, so I remember what network television was like. But... It's hard. It's just so hard to imagine this show alongside like the facts of life or eight is enough or whatever, like whatever the shows were, the, the television sitcoms of 1982, um, because basically there were two kinds of shows. There was like crappy, two kinds of comedy shows. There was like crappy, uh, there was crappy sitcoms and uh, well-crafted sitcoms, you know, like there had been minor innovations, you know, it's like, oh, well, Norman Lear shows are about people who are struggling and maybe incorporate some social issues in very special episodes. Um, you know, MASH is allegorical about the Vietnam War um, and looks different. Uh, you know, there, there, there were things happening, but mostly it was just like Webster, you know, mm-hmm. and like no offense to Webster, it's I, a lot of talented people worked on it and did their best, but I don't want to go back to watch more Webster. You know what I mean? Like right. it, it served its it served its purpose. Whereas this is like a really distinctive, original thing. I, I mean. To, if if I was if I was gonna guess, I would say if this had been on if this had happened ten years later, if this had been on Fox in the early days of Fox, for example, I don't know if it would have been a big success. It, it at the very least would have um, ran longer. I mean, Get a Life ran for three years or whatever, and Get a Life is, I mean, I mean it's a sitcom starring Chris Elliott that where he does Chris Elliott stuff the whole time, (laughs) you know, (laughs) there was an episode where he and his dad had an alien that moved in with them that kept barfing on them. Um, I've never seen this show. That just baffled me. Oh, you've never seen get a life. Well, you should totally watch get a life because, uh, uh, while it is a, while it is of the early nineties, it is a, a very special show. And it was, you know, there's other, you know, whatever married with children, which, may not to be everyone to everyone's taste but like is very tonally distinctive and was very remarkable in its time or it's Larry Sanders show um I mean it's Gary Shandling's show uh would be another example of this another kind of proto uh Simpsons uh a little earlier like maybe I I kind of feel like if it had been on Fox maybe they could have got 3 seasons out of it but it, it one of the problems with it as a television show is that we tend to turn to television shows because we have a relationship with the characters. And it is hard to develop a relationship 
with these characters, even as sweet as Leslie Nielsen is, because nothing in the show has any emotional stakes uh, <laughs> other than those that are like predetermined by the structure. So it would really only be people like me who just want to watch a thousand perfect jokes. Like the thing about Webster or whatever is sure. The jokes are hokey, but they knew how to use this basic sitcom form to get people to have an emotional relationship with the characters that would get them to come back. And it doesn't matter if the jokes are that great if you care about the characters a lot um, or if they just com bring comfort to you or whatever it is that, that the things that people look for in sitcoms mostly. So whether Graining is right that it would have been a big hit, I don't know. Um, but I think that it's tough. Like I, I was thinking about, I don't know if you, did you ever see the show Man Seeking Woman? Yep, I've seen a couple episodes. Yeah, so that is a this is a show where um created by a guy named Simon Rich who's one of the most brilliantly funny human beings in the world. Um and it's like it's like a a friends dating sitcom where each episode goes on a kind of literal fantastical uh allegorical journey in the context of it being a friends dating sitcom. So, you know, like it's, they're going on a date and there's a war room with a bunch of generals arguing about whether to go nuclear or whatever. Right. And mm -hmm. that show, from my perspective, at least like there was so much funny in that show and great actors and beautiful to look at all the ideas really play through really cleanly but it never caught on with audiences. And like, I think the reason is when you've got a lot of setup for the jokes, even when the setup is relatively emotional as it is there, like it's just hard to build that relationship with the characters. And I don't know if that ever would have happened for, for a police squad. Yeah. And a lot of like, a lot of people turn to TV to kind of like shut their brains off and not necessarily watch a sitcom for the comedy, if that makes sense. Like it's why like your shows like Big Bang Theory are successful where it's just kind of formulaic jokes. You just want to shut your brain off and watch. Yeah, because you, you know, you like it. It's a, you know, ultimately the role that the thing that sitcoms give us is they give us a family, introduce disorder, and then resolve it in the family, right? Mm -hmm. And that is very, com very deeply comforting if you can imagine yourself being part of this family, whether it's a group of workplace people or the the friends from the hit television show, The Friends, um, <laughs> or whatever, right? Like all of these are essentially families that are disordered by some force and then reordered afterwards, and um, or or at the conclusion, and that is that feels really good, um, and <laughs> this show is essentially a mockery of that <laughs> like it's because it's the it's a very similar thing with um with procedurals like police procedurals you know what police procedurals and and true crime and so forth give you is the possibility that you can you know you can have a, a relatable and ordered world it can be disordered in this case by something that is scary but that scariness is contained within the promise, the expectation that no matter what, there will be resolution, um, that justice will be served or whatever, right? Because you know the form. You know that every law and order ends in court. There's no law and orders about crimes where they're like, yep, yeah, we just can't figure out who murdered that woman. <laughs> the end. Dun dun. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, and so this is making fun of that. Uh, in a way, although it is funny, like how resilient that is, that like you still kind of want to know like who did it or whatever <laughs> when you're watching this show where uh, at, at, at any given moment uh, they might have, yeah, a matte painting of the Tower of Pisa in the background. So we're going to take a quick little break and then we'll be back. 
Hello, I am Colin Parker. And I'm Alex Taylor. And we are the hosts of Journey Under 30. This is a podcast all about us doing what we can to be named in a future Forbes 30 Under 30. On each episode, we take a look at a career of an individual that has been recognized by Forbes. Sometimes we look at careers that we think were overlooked. Or sometimes we talk about the careers that you may not know about, but you should. And in the end, we discuss what we've learned as well as how we can apply it to our own career paths as we make our mark on this world. So join us every other Tuesday on whatever podcatching app you choose, and we'll see you on the Forbes. See ya. Bye-bye now. <laughs> so, had this show continued, what kind of episodes do you think we would have seen? It's hard to know, isn't it? I mean, they're so... I guess they just take every... I mean, they made Dragnet for 20 years or something, right? So, mm-hmm. you just take every dragnet plot and add a thousand jokes to it <laughs> um i mean like i don't even know like i, I you you can you add and subtract runners like i don't think that every runner in every episode would have continued um but like yeah you just keep finding these because m- some of the jokes are about like it would be hard after a while to come up with new policeman jokes because you've just done a lot of policeman jokes, but not that many of the jokes are really driven by that. Like, there's formatic ones, you know? There's, like, the the guy in the science lab that they go to every episode. There's, like, the stool pigeon, who's a shoeshine guy, that they go to every episode. But overall, mostly it's, like words taken literally and stuff like that. So I think there's a fair number of places they could have gone. I mean, I could see them making 40 of them. You know what I mean? Right. I feel like there definitely would have been an episode where they did a joke about like his gun safety is on and it's just one of those old uh, steering wheel locks. Yeah. That's like on the barrel of the gun. He's He's got like a big old janitor ring of keys trying to go through. I'm like, nope, not this one. Not this one. <laughs> Yeah, the my I think this which is is your favorite my favorite runner I think is the stool pigeon. I love there's a, this is a bit where Lieutenant Frank Drebin will go to get his shoes shined and he'll slip the guy and it's yeah, it's a guy who talks like this and he'll slip him an extra $20 for underworld information <laughs> and then he'll get up and walk away and someone else will sit down in the chair and uh, the two that, the two that are most vivid to me are Tommy Lasorda, legendary Dodgers manager. Tommy Lasorda <laughs> sits down in his full Dodgers, uh, uniform, and slips him twenty dollars to uh to ask him how he should manage his bullpen. <laughs> and the other one is uh Dick Clark sits down, and and asks what ska is. <laughs> <laughs> and the stool pigeon explains all what ska is and also why ska will never be that successful in the United States. <laughs> and then Dick Clark asks for some of his miracle youth cream and he just smears some shoe polish on his face and then he leaves. Uh, that is hilarious. I, I definitely need to finish those last couple episodes. Um, see, I love I love the uh, freeze frame endings. That's probably my favorite. Oh yeah, that is gorgeous. Just watching the coffee pour over someone's hand or whatever it is. Oh, it's just beautiful. Or like everybody's standing still and a criminal is kind of looking around, like, "What the hell is going on?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I heard on the DVD. I I, uh, I don't remember if when I had the DVD I looked at it, but um, on the DVD I think they there's an excess. Like, there's an excess uh, freeze frame. It's funny, like, this is... Every bit of this has to be so tight that I can't imagine they had basically any extra anything that could go on a DVD, but they did have one extra freeze frame. Uh, But I don't remember. Gosh, I wish I remembered what it was, but I didn't. Uh, No, I don't don't remember. I know, like, there's not very many special features, like, deleted scene-wise. It's more so, like, the commentary and stuff like that. Can I just emphasize to your audience, this DVD costs like $8. This will be like the best $8 you ever spend. Just spend the $8. Drop drop the 8 on it. Also, it's on YouTube. 
but spend the eight dollars. Right. It was like fifteen bucks at Walmart right now, and it comes with all three of the Naked Gun movies too. Wow. Yeah. There you go. That's a deal. Oh yeah. Naked Gun movies are funny too, huh? What else do we think is funny? Let's just list <laughs> things. <laughs> hmm. You know, I hear that Bo Burnham is a, quite a funny guy. <laughs> yeah, seems like a sweetheart too. He does. <laughs> so before we go, um, we have a segment where we uh, pitch a guest appearance for Wallace Shawn. Um, hopefully this theme song will play. This is the first time I'm using this in here. But here it goes. Well, he's been through Hollywood from the Princess Bride to Clueless. He's an actor and a playwright and an essayist as well. He is nowhere to be found, so it's time for us to do this. Tell me why in the world isn't Wallace Shawn on this show? It's time for why in the world isn't Wallace Shawn on this show. So, Jesse, what do you think a guest appearance of Wallace Shawn would look like on Police Squad? Was that you singing it live just now, or did you just do a one take before, mix it, and then you use the that one live take every time? Oh, I, I, I mixed it beforehand. There's actually no uh, instrumental of Rockapella's Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego, so I had to try and recreate it using just the intro. <laughs> Yeah, well, you, know, you did you did a nice job. I, your 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 lead vocal is hesitant. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you fully committed to the Wallace Shawn related lyrics that you wrote for "Where in the World Is Carmen Sandiego" <laughs> theme song, uh, but I admire it. Did you know I love Wallace Shawn? I think Wallace Shawn is the greatest. I've had him on my NPR show, Bullseye, before. I, I genuinely this this segment comes out of a love for Wallace Shawn. I will say that. I I've read two different books of essays by Wallace Shawn. I haven't actually read his essays. Um my co my regular co host actually saw him after the election doing an interview with Noam Chomsky at uh Emerson and he was like, Oh yeah, that was pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> was it just called Galaxy Brain? <laughs> Wait. Wow. That is, it's like the category there is people who are possibly too smart for their own good. Like impossibly smart humans live on stage. Yeah. Um, yeah, Wallace Shawn is the greatest. So what kind of role do you think he would have played in this show as like a guest appearance, aside from being tossed out of a car in the beginning? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's uh, that's an easy one. I, I feel like this show... You could hardly have more possible Wallace Shawn roles. I mean, Weasley, crime boss, Weasley, crime underling, Weasley, police officer, Weasley, police chief. Um, like, there's basically no role other than the femme fatales on police squad that Wallace Shawn would not be awesome at. I mean, there's a guy on this show... I can't even think of what his name is, but he's one of the policemen who has lines and stuff. And he was a competitive bodybuilder, a famous competitive bodybuilder who was on whew, he was on some really long running show before uh before he was on police squad. And he's just there to be a meathead. But his meatheadedness is so beautifully perfect. And Wallace Shawn would fit in with, I mean, Wallace Shawn could nail it. Like, that's the thing about Wallace Shawn. You think that because he ha only has an acting career and only took up acting because Woody Allen needed a guy who was funnier looking than he was to play uh, a visual joke in a movie, um, that Wallace Shawn would only be a guy with a funny voice and, and a funny face. But actually, Wallace Shawn is exceptionally great at acting. Like, I think Wallace Shawn is so good. Like, I was, I, my kids went through a period where they watched Toy Story all the time. And he's so great in it. Like, he brings so much more than he has to to every single one of these things he does. Like, he's so proud of his work on Clueless, the TV show, 
which as like a capital A art playwright and celebrated essayist and child of the editor of The New Yorker is, I think, a pretty cool position to have. Like as a genuine public intellectual, one of very few that we have, that he is that he brought so much to the clueless TV show and is so proud that he did is gorgeous. Is this, I, I could talk about how much I love Wallace Shawn for an hour. That guy's the greatest. Yeah. Wallace, Wallace Shawn is just amazing. Uh, I feel like he could have played like, like a police commissioner or something that has like a vendetta against Frank Drebin. Yeah. Like maybe like, like he stole Frank's woman or something and it's like a flashback but it's still Wallace Shawn looking like he does present day. And Frank's just like, he's just a very sexual man. Yeah, I think that'd be a ton of fun. I honestly, let me put it this way. And I'm pretty proud of this. A role on Police Squad that Wallace Shawn couldn't play? Inconceivable. (laughs) Thank you. I will take my trophy and go home. (laughs) I think that's actually a great place to end this episode. Um, First of all, thank you so much for coming on, Jesse. Of course. Thank you for having me. And thanks for talking about this uh, great show with me. So everybody should definitely check out Bullseye, Jordan, Jesse Go, anything on Maximum Fun. That's where I listen to most of my podcasts, honestly. Um, Good choice. Good choice. Thank you. (laughs) So, yeah, uh, I think that's going to do it for this episode. Um, Just remember, some things are better left unaired. Bye. Hey, Jen. Hey, Micah. Remember watching the Friends premiere? No, I never saw that. Oh, but remember those first Wu-Tang solo albums that came out? No, I don't. Remember that terrible Frasier theme song? Oh, my God. Remember I was sent away from home when I was 16, sent to, like, the middle of nowhere, Montana, therapeutic boarding school, none of this rings a bell? Oh, yeah. Join us for I Never Saw That, a podcast about mid-90s pop culture and Montana. What about ER? You saw that, though, right? No! No!